Welcome to the Bright Vibe Podcast. At Bright Vibe, we believe everyone deserves to be happy. But in today's world, everywhere you turn, there is division and negativity. At Bright Vibe, we have created a global movement to bring 8 million people together who are inspired to live bright, live bold, and share bright vibes. Alone, it can be hard to change, but together we can change the world. Welcome to the Bright Vibe Podcast. William Kilmer, welcome to the Bright Vibe Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I would love to have you on. In fact, you know, I love the name of your book. We're going to get into that. But uh, for our audience, for our viewers, tell us a little bit about William Kilmer. What's kind of your background? Sure, uh, absolutely. So I've been a tech entrepreneur and VC investor my entire career. Um, so I've been really focused sort of on uh, innovative technology, particularly around networking, cybersecurity, cloud and um, I kind of have a unique position in that, um, you know, I've grown up in the industry, have been in uh, startups, I've been a founder previously, uh, starting up a couple of cybersecurity companies and data analytics. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I've also been a VC investor. And uh, most recently, uh, I've been working with uh, a platform, an investment platform that we're focused on, particularly investing in and also starting uh, new technology companies uh, sort of from scratch. And so... Mm -hmm. Wow. My, my passion has always been in, in investing and really building great companies. That's awesome. That's amazing. I'm an entrepreneur myself and love everything entrepreneurial and it doesn't even really matter what the industry is. When I get around people that have started businesses or that are running businesses um, or wanting to start businesses, it's just like, I love the stories, right? The stories yeah. are always, there's always an amazing story and continual story with anybody that's in business to any degree, um, especially when there's startups. Startups, there seems to be a, a magic to those, uh, energy to them. You know, there's just so many highs and lows all at once. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I mean, to me, that's what's so addicting about it. Um, no yeah. matter what side you're in, it's just that energy and enthusiasm for building something new and something that is going to be beneficial to others. It's just yeah. a drive that, you know, is unlike any other. Yeah, totally, totally. You have a, a new book out called Transformative, right? Mm -hmm. That's the title of the book. And I know it leans, or not leans, it is about businesses. But I think, you know, typically on the show, we talk about, you know, we talk about health, we talk about wellness, we talk about business, we talk about entrepreneurship, we talk about leadership, we talk about everything here. And so as we get into it, we can certainly talk organizationally. But then, you know, if for listeners, obviously, these same principles will apply to you know, your personal life, your family life, you know, other hobbies, whatever you have to do, right? So you basically have a premise that companies don't spend enough time in kind of the transformative space. I guess, give us some color around that. You yeah. Know, where do you think companies are failing or not doing as good as they should? Right. So, you know, I think there's there's a, a little backstory behind the book I'd love to share with you. Yeah, you know, please. Again, yeah, yeah. again yeah. I've got, you know, a fair amount of experience in the industry. I've spent a lot of time with leaders, entrepreneurs in particular, which has been uh -huh. my passion. And, you know, I've always been looking for what is sort of the right framework for thinking about, um, you know, your business and how you're really going to accelerate it and grow and become something impactful. And that's the whole idea about transformative is like, what, what is the difference between a company that has had such impact on the market that they almost stand, stand alone versus companies that, you know, can grow, but they're sort of part of the, the market norm. And, uh, you know, so much, so often we think about products and, oh, you know, they created a really interesting product. It's a new product. And we get this ideal that companies oftentimes are sort of the first to market. They're the ones who invented something that has become so big. And, um, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time sitting in board meetings with working with CEOs and with others. And I really kind of went on this journey myself to say, say how do I step back and really look at both what I've learned from 
you know, from working with so many great leaders, but also looking at some of the most transformative companies out there. And what can we distill away from that to really identify, um, you know, how a company should look at their next great opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so transformative really is around essentially how companies are able to find, build, and then scale a market that they in particular can win. It's almost like they've tailor fitted it to their capabilities and, you know, have just done such an outstanding job at creating something new and that, you know, that they basically win that market. And when you peel that back, there's very simple, very basic principles behind it. Number one is that much to our surprise, most of these companies aren't out there inventing something that is just completely new. Oftentimes they're taking a small seed of what's already in the market, something that's already in demand, and they're shifting that in a way that just creates such a profoundly different outcome for the customers that it ends up changing that market. You know, and I think about one of my you know, favorite examples is a really simple one that you know, some people who you know, have, have had enough experience may remember, which is Netflix you know, 1.0. Mm -hmm. And you know, at the time of Netflix 1.0, when they were a DVD rental company, they just really appeared to everybody like they're just taking on you know, Blockbuster and they're doing a better version of Blockbuster. But the reality is if you peel that back, you know, if you think about the Blockbuster experience back at that time, it was rush down on a Friday or a Saturday night, try to get the, you know, the latest movie that's come out before everybody else had, watch it and then get it back to Blockbuster within 24 hours so you don't get the late fee. And you know, what, uh, what Netflix ended up doing, which interestingly enough, they uh, actually copied a lot of Blockbuster's model for their first year. But what they, what they ended up doing was creating a totally different experience. It wasn't about that latest blockbuster movie. It was about at the time when DVDs were just coming around, uh, how do you open up an entire library of 50,000, 60,000 plus DVDs that you can start borrowing as, on a subscription? And so it wasn't about, you know, let's get the latest movie. It now became what, you know, what part of that long tail of content do we really want to watch? And so people started watching not just movies, but also documentaries, TV shows, all of these other things that they probably wouldn't have rented elsewhere. And it was a shift in that customer experience that gave them a much different outcome where they could walk over to their TV, pick up a DVD that was sitting there that they had already subscribed to and decided that was their priority and watch it anytime they wanted to. And really that genesis, that thread is what's led to you know, streaming and on-demand content because they sort of created that in an analog way to begin with. And so that's really the first principle of the book is, you know, how do you identify new opportunities by shifting the customer outcome, shifting it so that they fulfill their overall basic need, but they're doing it in such a profound way that it really shifts the market in your favor. Hmm, interesting. I didn't even know Netflix did that, to be honest with you. I didn't realize that they, there was a, I didn't, I never realized that they actually sent stuff to your house. Yeah, yeah, uh, Matt, you're uh, you're not old enough. To, oh, well, I'm probably to, old to enough. I probably it. just didn't do it, <laughs> but yeah. But there was a time when Netflix actually sent out, it was like a subscription then, you paid the monthly thing and then you just got access to however yeah. many movies you wanted or whatever. A absolutely, yeah, and they were delivered. And you know, the nice, the, the interesting thing is, is that whether it's, you know, the original Netflix all the way through to where they are today, where they're creating their own content, mm -hmm. it's always been guided by the same basic principle, which was set by, you know, CEO Reed Hastings right at the beginning, which is how do we provide access to a deep level of content, you know, of movies, that mm -hmm. our viewers love. So it's not about the one-off, it's about how do we, you know, how do we give them everything that they want on demand? And that's changed the company over time. You know, they've kind of gone through these different eras or right. epochs that they've had to change the company in order to change the definition of how they're doing that.
And that, you know, can be applied in so many different ways. One of the other companies that I talk about extensively is a, is a company that you may be familiar with as well called a Dollar Shave Club. And oh, yeah. you know, Dollar I've Shave Club kind uh -huh. of revolutionized yeah. in some ways how you, know, re you receive razors. And that's kind of like the first view that we have is, you know, well, they were just a male version of, you know, uh, what you would get from a Kmart or, you know, mm -hmm. Walmart or Target or, mm -hmm. you know, whomever it is. But the reality is they actually changed the user experience so profoundly that they created a new market. And that was the idea that it's not just about getting a razor, but it was about connecting like-minded men mm -hmm. who wanted to do to to have better grooming habits and wanted to be part of a community to do that. So it was how do you connect with advice, you know, things like beyond the razors themselves and looking for shaving cream and you know mm -hmm. facial uh, cleansers and all of these other things. And it sort of shifted that experience. So you were no longer competing off of uh, somebody like Gillette or Schick, where it was all about billion dollar ad budgets and, you know, right. what superstar you had who was endorsing your razor. It was about being part of a community. And that so profoundly shaped, uh, changed the market that people gravitated towards that. And they ended up uh, with a billion dollar sale to Unilever because of it. So it mean, really oh. starts with that idea of how do you change that, that user experience or that user outcome? And then, so what should, what, should be questions that, and so no matter what size of business that you're thinking, whether you're just, you know, getting into business or been in business a long time, what questions should we be asking ourselves around that so that we can shift our mindset? Because typically I've found it with better questions, you get better, better outcomes. So yeah. what, what are the questions should, we should be asking ourselves to help us start to step into that mindset of being able to shift the customer experience? Mm -hmm. I, you know, to me, uh, the, uh, the primary area to focus on is not, you know, how do we build a better product, but mm -hmm. where can we take the customer? Where can we take mm -hmm. that user knowing what their basic need is? How do we build something around that is that is a unique experience, a unique outcome that literally will change the way that they look at that solution and how they define, you know, their, their priorities in, in buying. So, you know, to me, it's really focusing on that. And this, this gets to what I think is a really important area that is sort of the B side of my book, if you don't mind me saying, the sort of the A side, which is, you know, let's study the companies and look at, you know, how they did it and come up with these basic principles. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I focus on basically three things. How do you find that, that new customer outcome? How do you grow your market? And then turning internally uh, is the organization. How do you bring your company along with that experience so that they build it with you? But the sort of B-side to my book is really some of the research that I did behind it, which is to look at who are the leaders behind these organizations and why were they any different? And the one thing that stood out as I looked across all of these companies is that about 75% of the, the founders of these organizations were actually industry outsiders. They were hmm. people who had no experience in the industry whatsoever. So, you know, one of the things that just set me down was, you know, why are they so good? And, you know, why are there so many of these that are sort of those outsiders? And especially from the perspective of, you know, when we're, when we look at an industry in particular, if you're, if you're in business, we prize people with industry experience. You know, we look for mm -hmm. resumes of you know, right. people who have the background that we're looking for, who've done it before in the same, the right. same market. We, you know, we incentivize and we hire our leaders from those who are inside of the company. And yet, when you look at who are the game changers out there, they're mainly led by people who don't have any industry experience. So a lot of right. what we look at, you know, and, and that I preach is that people really take this idea of an outsider's perspective. How do you how mm -hmm. do you build an outsider's mindset and look at what you're doing 
like somebody who's fresh to the market and who's curious about how you can improve it and make it better. And that makes complete sense because, you know, I, well, in any situation, that historical perspective, sometimes, you know, it's, well, there's value there. There's also limitations because it's kind of the old adage, well, that's the way we've always done it, right? Mm -hmm. That we, we get stuck in that, well, that's the way we've always done it if we've been around it. And I found, I found myself in a couple of situations where I'd founded companies and started stuff and, you know, a decade later, and I'm just kind of like, you know, at one point I just was like, okay, I need to fire myself because I am the one right holding everything back because I'm the one that's still thinking about that's the way we did it. Because I used to think I was super innovative, but I was like, but I'm the one causing us not to move forward because I'm not innovating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm absolutely. Thinking, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, well, it was just, we were innovative when we got started, like in the healthcare field, we were innovative when we got started, but then we just kind of rested in that same innovation. We never migrated to something we never we just kept the same model and we just kept repeating it versus actually looking at where is the innovation here yeah absolutely you know and you think about there's so many things that cause us to sort of swim upstream towards that that outsider's mindset you mm-hmm. think about cognitive biases you know we mm-hmm. we don't we we tend to have a confirmation bias right we always look for things that are going to support um you know our conclusions our outcome, already right, yeah, right? Yeah, right. we have an anchoring bias that you know the first thing that we've learned or the first input is what we sort of you know hold to or anchor um to and you know those are really difficult for us to overcome unless we develop sort of a feedback loop where we start thinking about what's changed you know what's different and i i, I put this at the very end of the book but there's a whole loop process that we look at in terms of how do you evaluate where your kind of worldview is what you're looking at today Mm-hmm. And see incrementally what's changed, and then question: Am I am I fully understanding it? Am I filtering this? Am I you know going back to to evidence that that validates what I'm doing? And then based off of that, how do you reorient yourself and your company? Um, you know what challenges are are appearing that you need to go and focus on now? How do you act on that in a measured way so that you can evaluate how you're doing and then start that that process over again? And you know one of the things that I think. Um, to me is most interesting. The the way that I start the book actually is a story about Intel Corporation Mm -hmm. um, back in the in the 1980s, uh, 1984 to be exact. And, you know, the company was not the the Intel that we think of today that supplies the, you know, the CPUs, the the computer chips for for computers today. They were in the memory business. And, you know, the the three founders uh, that were there had built such an amazing business already for 17 years but it was struggling and it was mm. running into some really, really deep competition, particularly from Japanese suppliers that had been able to build huge fabs, uh, these you know fabrication plants mm. that could build much cheaper memory than they could. And they were really just losing over and over and over again on these deals. And they kept trying to figure out how are we going to get out of this? And those three were some of the most amazing managers in the tech industry of all time. This is uh, Bob Noyce, uh, Gordon Moore and, and Andy Grove. And they literally, coming back to a phrase you had earlier, they got to a point where Andy Grove, they, they, had, they had reviewed what they should do over and over again. And Andy Grove had basically said, listen, what if we looked at things like we just got fired? Right. And then we're the new management team and we came back in the door today. What would we do? And mm-hmm. the, the, the decision was so obvious that the three of them knew absolutely what they, they needed to do. And they literally walked outside the front door of the building in Santa Clara turned around and came back in and said, we're going to do this, right? We're going to treat this just like we are new management. We (laughs) fired those old three guys and we're taking over. And they had to start from the ground up. And it was a very painful couple of years for them um, in order to get out of the memory business. And very fortunately, 
they had this new emerging sort of PC market that was that was showing mm -hmm. up at the time, but it was still uncertain. Um, and they went after that market and you know created an incredible success story. But when they did that, they completely reformulated what it meant to be a chip manufacturer in, a, mm -hmm. in such a way that it profoundly, again, sort of transformed the market so that they had an advantage. But it all comes from that outsider perspective of, you know, walking back in the door and saying, you know, what what would we do if we were different? Right. And, and you know, when you look at almost every industry, I've heard some of the examples, but like the, you know, the largest uh, taxi company in the world's now Uber, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't own a single car, right? right. And the largest hotel company in the, in the world is, you know, one of the online hotel booking services, right? They book more rooms than any hotel. And so it was outsiders coming into using technology, but coming into a space and thinking about what's the better customer experience mm -hmm. versus, you know, the hotel chains were kind of, they were just siloed in their own little you know, we're Marriott and we're, you know, Hilton and we're, and they weren't really thinking, how do you work? They were just selling rooms in their space. They weren't, they didn't disrupt themselves is the word I was, I'm coming to is I've heard that used a lot as you have to disrupt your own way of thinking. You have to disrupt your own company or someone else will come in and disrupt it for you. Right. Yeah. So you're either, you're either the disruptor or the disruptee. And if you're, and if you're wondering which you are, then you're the disruptee, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. I, I mean, there's... absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and it's interesting because one of the topics that I have in the book, a chapter is dedicated towards building new capabilities as an organization. Once you've recentered on that customer outcome and said, this is what we're going to build that is different. Oftentimes that takes a new type of company to fulfill that. It takes new right. capabilities. So I spend a chapter talking about how to evaluate and identify what are the core capabilities? And, you know, it may be everybody else has had assets in this area. They've all, you know, had the cars or they've had the hotels or whatever it is, but we are going to do something different. That's going to replace that, but it's all centered around. Let's throw everything out the, out the window, except for what is going to help us build that core, that core customer outcome that we're, we're trying to achieve. And you're right. You know, one of the uh, two interesting statistics that come up that are very parallel to each other in the research that I've done is 60% of organizational leaders today believe that their next competitor is going to come from outside of their mm -hmm. industry. So right. they're already thinking an outsider is going to come in and change what I'm doing. Right. Uh, likewise, uh, another study found that 56% of CEOs in the global 2000 said, my best opportunity is to actually disrupt my own industry mm -hmm. rather than trying to keep it as the status quo. So again, it right. comes back to this, you know, outsider view, if you really want, you know, performance that is orders of magnitude above where you are, you think like an outsider. If you want to kind of stay the course, you think more like an insider. And the key for, for leaders is how do I develop that outsider's view? How do I develop that, mm -hmm. that, that mindset? Right. Of course. And how do they? That's a great question, William. You know, a lot of times I've, you know, we've worked with consultants, we've worked with people that could help us uh, we went through leadership training programs. We've helped, you know, we've kind of said, okay, how do you disrupt yourself? Um, because a lot of times, you know, especially in entrepreneurial companies, the company is not going to be able to grow past the, the founder mm -hmm. and the founder's ability to expand, right? And so, if, so really, well, I heard uh, John, is it Mackey or McKay with Whole Foods, the founder of Whole, sure. Whole Foods talking. And he said, every time his company stalled out, every time they plateaued at Whole Foods, he would look at himself and say, I am not growing as a human being. I'm not growing as a person. And so he would go do something 
to kind of do self-exploration to allow his, his own personal um, ideas and awareness expand. And then he said, and then the company would take off again, but it was, it was kind of that, you know, you, you just get, you get used to doing what you're doing. And if you're having success, it's almost a curse sometimes because the success is keeping you doing what you're doing. So you're almost fearful of, well, I'm, this feels good, right? This feels good. I'm succeeding in this area. I don't want to disrupt. I don't even want to think about disruption because I'm, I don't want the pain of what if that fails. Mm -hmm. I gave you a lot of stuff to do. I gave you yeah, a lot of stuff to work there's with. A, there's Sorry, a lot I there. just was dropping, dropping in all kinds of stuff. You can open no. any of those doors. Okay, well, let's go back to the first one, which is, you okay. know, how do you how do you become an outsider? How do you really yeah, build that exactly. that mindset? For me, you know, I break this up into two areas. How do you do that personally, and how do you uh, how do you help train your organization or incentivize your team um, to be able to do that? And I think you know one builds on the other from my perspective. If you look at um, if you look at the outsiders that are out there, um, both as outsiders, I would say, and insiders who think like outsiders, there's there's I think very positive examples of individuals who are able to rethink their markets, and you know they may be insiders. One of the great examples I think is is Mark Benioff uh, from Salesforce, the CEO of Salesforce. Uh -huh. Yeah, you know he came from the software industry. He's one of those few that was like an insider who went off and built something you know, totally different in terms of building that sort of software as a service or software that's being in the cloud. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think about others like Sam Walton who ran Walmart mm -hmm. um, or founded Walmart. He was an insider and he ran his own retail stores beforehand. And you look at across those organ or those leaders and I think you see a fairly common, you know, pattern. Number one, uh, they're curious individuals. Um, they're, you know, they're people who are willing to open up those questions and you know, ask further. Are we doing this the right way? Really, you know, kind of settling in and understanding. You know, two, they hire for diversity inside of their organization. Mm. You know, they look for people outside of you know out of their out of their market. And for them personally, they build their own personal networks um, and interests outside of their own business. So they mm. tend to, you know, have advisors or have uh, other people that they sort of hang around with. That are outside of it. And three, you know, they are steam, they are keen studiers of not only their own industry and understand it, but of other uh, markets and other industries as well. So I think they look a lot to the outside and try to borrow um, from those individual areas. So those are really, really important, you know, sort mm -hmm. of personal elements. And I think they sort of roll into, you know, how do you do this as an organization as well? One of the things that I always advocate is, you know, if you're going to take that outsider orientation, you have to develop curiosity as a as a company. You know, you have to develop diversity as an organization to to do this. So, you know, one of the first things I look at is, you know, you have to yourself be curious and be open and inclusive inside of your own team and let them know that you are interested in what their ideas are. Um, I just saw a, a data point which um, uh, which is similar to one that I include in the book, which is. You know, the level of engagement of employees today is just incredibly low. I think, you know, it was beforehand. Uh, it was beforehand. I think it's even lower now. But the, right. average, the average company, about 32% of the employees are actually actively engaged, meaning wow. they're doing beyond just sort of the bare minimum. Right. And I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, we talk about quiet quitting and everything else mm -hmm. today. Yep. I think right. a big portion of it is they just don't feel like what they're doing is meaningful or that right. they're really being asked to do anything more than what they're told to do. And so, you know, to me, a lot of it is just being open in the organization to ideas, to, um, you know, providing a forum for people to be able to do that. Second is, 
you know, I always advocate that companies sort of build what I call their worldview. They they develop, you know, a profile of what is the what does the market look like for them and for their customer and what's happening? What are the latest trends in technology, legal, social, environmental? And you know, list down what you think are the biggest factors that are impacting both your company and industry as well as the customers that you're servicing and sort of make that your framework and be willing to question those, those things, you know, bring them mm. up. I have a great example of a, you know, a friend who's the CEO of a company and she actually did this and she developed sort of three things that she put together in, in PowerPoint. And she would come into every meeting, every board meeting, every management team meeting, every team, you know, entire team meeting. And she would bring in these three slides and it was basically, here's our worldview of what we've all put together. We've all agreed mm. that this is what it looks like. Here's how it's impacting our customer and what we think their needs are today. And here is what we need to build and be in order to be able to best service our customers. And she mm -hmm. would put that up in every single meeting and say, mm -hmm. if you think we're missing something, if you think something here is no longer relevant, let's talk about it. You know, talk about right. it now. Come to me afterwards. Let's continually challenge what we have documented as our view of the world so that mm -hmm. we can identify areas that we can improve and be better. And to right. me, that was that's an inspiration and something that totally you know, that, yeah. that type of openness just shows mm -hmm. a leadership to say we're open to you know to to changing and to adapting as our needs require it. Right. Totally. Yeah. That's very inspirational. Not not the norm mm -hmm. for most companies, right? I mean, I think uh, new innovative companies or new or, or people that are, um, I think that's the company definitely of the future has to be that way, right? I mean, it, there's just no other, the world is just changing. The world's changing how people interact, changing how they communicate, mm -hmm. sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. Um, but I think to your point, employees are going to, and people in general are going to gravitate towards companies that are more open to that line of communication and doing something about it. It's one thing to take a, a customer service call and say, you know, kind of placate the situation. It's another to actually look at those things and say, okay, is this something we need to actually pivot in some way? Not a, maybe a full pivot, but or do we need to make, you know, what are we missing here? What, what is going on? I mean, and, and, you know, if we look back over the last hundred years, and I and I can't remember the actual statistic, but if you look at the major companies that were on the exchange a hundred years ago, there's maybe I don't know five percent, ten percent that are still in existence today, right? Because they just they didn't innovate, right? Or the market changed, and they didn't they they didn't you know companies that succeed are the ones that are the ones that are more um, open to what is the market actually doing, what is happening in the world, and we're going to do something about it versus we're just tired. <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and in fact, we've seen that pace accelerate over time. If you look mm -hmm. at the turnover, for example, of Fortune 500 companies, uh -huh. right. it's happened faster than it ever has before. And you're seeing companies come up from basically, you know, outside of that market to disrupting and displacing companies in, that are at the top of the market at a faster pace than we've ever seen before. And I think that's just a call for leadership to say, we have to start you know, thinking, thinking like outsiders. And, you know, at one point, I mean, we're talking sort of when I took, gave my example about the CEO, you know, you can mm -hmm. think, well, that that's easy. You know, she was in a hundred person company. It's mm -hmm. fairly easy to do. Some of these same principles can be applied if they're cultural, if they're actually put mm -hmm. into the culture of the organization in any size organization. One of the things I always talk about is, you know, if you're hiring people from the outside, sort of capture those outsiders and get their thoughts and opinion before they come in and sort of the corporate antibodies, you know, take <laughs> right. that out of them. 
Why did they join? You know, why did they come into this industry? What excites them, you know, about it? What ideas do they have that could be unique or innovative? And sort of capture that, you know, that DNA of those individuals coming in before they sort of, you know, end up adopting, you know, the, the ways of the company and they've kind of forgot those great ideas. And that can be done anywhere. You know, you could be a business unit manager or have a department that mm -hmm. you're running. If you hire somebody new, if, if your culture is really mirroring this at that level, you know, people will be interviewing their, you know, they'll be doing entry interviews and talking about what right. are your ideas? You know, nothing is, you know, nothing is uh, sort of off limits here. Tell us about what you think, or, you know, how would you do things differently? Sort of capturing that feeling when they're coming into the company. Right. And then the, you know, to your point, then the, the, the next thing is like in your example of, of the lady who was doing that in every meeting is then continuing to keep those channels of communication open right so that there's always that free flow even as a leader if it's painful to hear because it's like one more thing that you have to take on or one more thing you have to think about those 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 little things can mean a lot if 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 they're um again if 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 we want to get out of our own way or if we want to grow in our awareness where does that come from it's coming from the outside you know it's coming from those outside perspective it's coming from the market and the only way to really tell that's to be in in tune and engaged with the market in some way, shape, or form. I know how I, I've made a lot of mistakes through my life thinking I knew what the customer wanted, delivering a product, and then going, well, that's not actually what the customer <laughs> wanted. I was, you know, and, and if you're off by 10, 20, 30%, that could be failure, instant failure. Yeah. And, and so how do you stay connected to what the customer wants? I think that's a great question because, it, you know, there's always this balance between identifying what the customer wants and also mm -hmm. identifying where can you take the customer and, right. and, you know, and give them something that's completely different. One of the, you know, one of the best examples I think about in that is you think about Amazon and Amazon Prime mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, you know, Amazon Prime to me is one of the most interesting uh, you know, products, I'll call it, that's in mm -hmm. the market. If you look at the amount of revenue that Amazon makes from Amazon Prime, it would literally be in the Fortune 500 on its own. I think it would be just, like just the just the prime just by the itself. subscription service itself. <laughs> you know, be like 230 or something like that on the Fortune wow. 500. Um, and it's such a you know mishmash of things. It's you know it's free shipping. It's access to you know Kindle library. Um, right. It is uh, you know it's music. It's video. It's all of these things. Well, who asked for that? No, right. nobody, nobody did, you know? Nobody. So no, I, of, I signed up in the beginning. It was free shipping right. <laughs> and still is for me in my mind. But yeah. yes, I'm accessing these other things too, right? Yeah, so, you know, some of it, you know, you could never go to a customer and say, you know, well, what do you want? <laughs> well, yeah, I want free shipping plus video and you know, music <laughs> right, and all these other right, things. Right, right. Um, so, you know, there's always this careful balance, this art between, you know, how do we define, you know, what it is that the customer wants and what can we give them? And again, it kind of goes back to the, the first principle of, of, you know, my book, Transformative, which is you're really looking for how do you identify, you know, things that will change the way that the customer looks at the product that will give them a new set of benefits. And really what I look at as a key to that is, does it change their buying criteria? So you, you keep that, that seed, that nugget of what they're looking for today, but then you build around it to the point where, they're now looking at that as you know something completely different to them, and they have a different reason for buying that makes it incomparable with with anything else in the market. Um, you know, to me, uh, a prime example of this is a company like Starbucks. You know, Starbucks created essentially. I mean, you can look at you know Pete's Coffee and some of the other kind of precursors. Mm -hmm. but Starbucks really created. 
the mass sort of democratization of a place where you could go and buy coffee, you know, and it was a replacement for what people were doing in the past, which was making it at home or going into the office. But the reality is they kept that sort of nugget of, you know, it's centered around getting a cup of coffee and created right. a whole new experience around what, you know, they call a third place, a place that's not home, that's not work, where you could sit, you could maybe do a little bit of work, you could meet with people. I mean, there was just this whole other element around it where you just said, we're going to keep this piece, which is people want a cup of coffee in the morning or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the afternoon, but we're going to build this other element around it that is just so compelling that now that's the reason why they go rather than just the coffee itself. Hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, and so, yeah, they were taking something as your, to your point and, and in your book, they were taking something that was already happening, but how do we do that? Not only just better, they didn't make better. I, I'll argue the fact that they didn't make better coffee necessarily, even though I'm sure most people feel like that they, that go there feel like they did, but it was really re how do they create the experience around that, that activity that was already happening. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And, and, you know, I think back to the example that was given like Steve Jobs when he created the, um, the uh, iPod, similar, similar thing, right? It was people were listening to music, people were getting music, but then all of a sudden he made it just super easy to download it onto some device that you could take with us and make, and make with, make your own playlist, right? Make your own playlist, have a, much like Netflix, a lot broader spectrum of here's all these artists that I can, here's all this different music that I can download on this device. And people would have never necessarily thought, hey, I need a device that where I can download all my all my music, right? I have the radio or I have this, right? Right. It wasn't yeah. so it was doing something. It was the, the kernel or the seed was people are listening to music. How do we do it so that it makes it easier, faster, more convenient, and more reach um or more more uh, a bigger library for them to choose from, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great example. Um, you know, that was that leverages one of the pieces that I talk about for outcome innovators where, um, you know, the, the convenience factor is always a huge piece. You know, it's this idea of creating sort of product flow and convenience is a huge element of that, of just making it easier um, for, for finding things. And that's a, it's a key pivot point for, you know, for innovation. One of the, one of the principles I look at is this idea of democratization. How do you make something that's just available for everybody? And, you know, mm -hmm. we think about democratization might be, you know, uh, cheaper and, you know, easier to find or right. something like that. But, you know, it could be simplification. It could be things like just time and location. You know, how do you put something in front of somebody that is so much more convenient for them to get access to? That's a huge form of, of democratization that I think, mm. you know, really enables organizations. You know, we saw sort of the rise of the DVD market, you know, years ago in Redbox. Mm -hmm. And Redbox's, mm -hmm. you know, simple principle was, you know, most movies are watched like in an evening after somebody gets home from work. So why don't I just put all of these 40,000 red box uh, you mm -hmm. know, uh, distribution points where people go, you know, to a fast food place or a, a grocery store or at a convenience store. And that is a democratization in a way because it's a it's a location and a time uh, mm -hmm. availability to it that you just show up, you see it there, you can pick something up. And, uh, you know, those are the elements that when you really peel back and you start thinking about how do I change an outcome for somebody makes it just so much easier. Um, you know, when you look at those, those micro elements of, I can make this more convenient, more democratized, more available for people. And, you know, the other elements are around just convenience and, you know, mass customization. How do I make it available to people in the way that they want it? And music was a big 
big portion of that is, you know, it's mass customization. It's available. I can download, you know, take whatever I want, uh, you know, or, or buy whatever I want, not, you know, these mass libraries or albums. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I love your stuff. Um, how do people typically, I know you have your website, right? WilliamKilmer.com. That's right. Yeah. Pretty straight, people, pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. People can, people can find me there. Um, you know, they can, uh, they can reach out to me directly there and, uh, you know, happy to engage with people. Yeah. And then typically the how do you work with organizations? Do you, when you're, when you're working with organizations, typically, what are you doing? Are you looking at the technology side? Are you looking at the platform side? What are you kind of helping them identify? Yeah. As, as an investor, first and foremost, um, you know, I work with a lot of startups and most right. of that is around investing, working with the management team, helping them to find, you know, new opportunities, um, doing some advisory work. Uh, with other companies, you know, I've tended to work around a few areas, um, principally, I think one of the, the, the two things that I often talk about with organizations is building or in a lot of cases, rebuilding a foundation on mm -hmm. culture and mm -hmm. uh, values and how to create the right the right culture for an organization that's tailor-made for them. The other piece is working with leadership teams around how to think like an outsider. You know, how mm -hmm. do you reassess, you know, what you're doing, but also learn the practice of an outsider's mindset so that you can apply it for yourself in the future. I love it. I love it. And all of this, uh, you know, obviously is in the book. So the easy thing is just to go to Amazon, as you've already said, right? Just down, you know, just <laughs> click on the, uh, to buy the transformative book, start there and, and, and I think it's uh, so needed today because it's happening already. It's not like you need to do this to be cutting edge. You just need to do this just to kind of stay uh, status quo almost anymore. You have to be transformative just to meet the market where the market's going or you're behind. It's kind of like if you're not transforming, you're, you're already missing the, the bus has already left the station. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's very true. But, you know, and then there's also just this power of doing something that is so different that is energizing as we talked about at the very beginning and that right. helps build an organization that people want to be at that they're engaged at and that they're actively contributing to um you know it just takes companies to a whole different level and it really starts with you know really examining the management team examining how you're approaching things and um being open to new ideas and to engaging your team on on uh, on achieving something great Love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Bright Vibe podcast. We really appreciate that. And uh, we'll definitely put links in the in the uh, links to your stuff in the show notes. But thank you so much for coming on. And we, as we say uh, so often, anytime you'd like to come back, you write another book, you have something that you're like, hey, people need to know this. We'd love to have you come back on and share this with our community because it's all about sharing knowledge and uh, from people that are kind of experts in their in their field and with what they do. So thank you, William, so much for coming on today. Thanks, Matt. I had a great time and I uh, look forward to talking again. Perfect. Thank, thank you. you for being a part of the Bright Vibe podcast. For more information, go to brightvibe.com. That's B-R-I-T-E vibe, dot -E com. Thank you for listening. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.